Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests." But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So once again, Jesus is going to use a parable to teach a point. Now, as we get into this tonight, I want to remind you, parables are Stories that Jesus tells to teach a point or a truth. If you try to take a parable and make every little detail of the parable fit perfectly, you're going to hurt yourself because that's not how parables work and that's not the point of a parable. A parable is a story that is told to teach a point and you're going to see what that point is in just a bit. But in order to grasp what he's doing here, I want to remind you, it's been a few weeks since we've been together. Let me remind you of what it is that Jesus has been saying. He's been warning the Jews that they'll be judged and removed from their land for rejecting God's son and God's purposes are now going to be accomplished through others as we looked at last time we were together, the church who will produce the desired fruit that he has. And so go back to chapter 21. Look at verses 33 through 43 to remind us of what he's been telling them. It says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So now he's telling another parable, kind of illustrating that same point that the Jews were invited to the kingdom more than once, but they weren't worthy to enter the kingdom. We're going to get into the weren't worthy in just a little bit here. And so then he says, go invite everybody else to come to the kingdom. So in this parable, Jesus continues this teaching that he's been doing and where we left off. But he also explains that entry into the kingdom is tied to a proper response to the invitation to the kingdom. I want, if you're taking notes, write it that way, because I want you to grasp this. This is where he's going. In this parable, Jesus continues the teaching about the fact that the Jews have rejected the offer to the kingdom, and it's offered to everybody else now. 
But he's also teaching that entry into the kingdom is tied to a proper response to the invitation to the kingdom. Notice how he says in verse 8 that the ones who were invited were not worthy. Look again at verse 8. He says in verse 8, he says, Then he said to his servants the, wedding well, servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, they were worthy enough to be invited. Correct? See, a lot of people think God wouldn't even invite them to heaven because they're not even worthy enough to be invited. This passage is actually teaching that worthiness is not tied to whether or not you're worthy enough to be invited. Everybody's worthy enough to be invited. And hopefully you understand this, the call to salvation is to everyone. We see it at the end of this parable when he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Your entrance into the kingdom is tied to your response to the invitation. How you respond to the invitation. Again, they were worthy enough to be invited, but how they responded to the invitation determines whether or not they were worthy to enter the kingdom. Go to Matthew uh, chapter 22 here and look at verse 10. So the servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both what? Both the good and bad. So first off, worthiness to be invited into God's kingdom is not tied to how good, are you are, how good you are. Did you see it? Because they, they brought into the kingdom both good and bad. They were good and bad were invited to the kingdom. On top of that, nor is entry determined by how good or bad you are. Not, not only does God doesn't use how good or bad you are to determine whether or not you're invited. He also doesn't use how good or bad you are to determine whether or not you get in. Yet that goes against everything that most people in the world think about. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody and they'll say, well, I've done too many bad things. God would never invite me. God would never accept me. Folks, it's not tied to how good or how bad you are. It's tied to how you respond to the invitation. Worthiness to enter the kingdom is tied to whether or not you are humble enough or willing enough to acknowledge your need of God's paying for your entrance into the kingdom because of your sin. That's all it is. Now, we're going to see this laid out from the scriptures. Let's go back in chapter 5 of Matthew and be reminded of how Jesus has been laying this out for us all along. In Matthew chapter 5, look at what he said in two verses, in verse 3 and verse 6 of Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones who are poor spiritually, because those are the ones that are going to be able to receive the kingdom. But then he adds this, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, let this sink in for a minute. When it comes to spiritual condition, everyone in the world is spiritually bankrupt, correct? Apart from Christ, apart from God giving us righteousness, we're all spiritually bankrupt. But even though the world is spiritually bankrupt, apart from Christ, does the world hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do we have a lot of people that think they're okay? Oh, by the way, that was the problem with the Jews. You see, the Jews thought they didn't need God's righteousness. They had righteousness. We're descendants of Abraham. We're automatically in because Abraham is our father. And Jesus even said to him, and, and John the Baptist as well, he said, look, don't just say you're okay because Abraham's your father. On top of that, the Pharisees and the Jews themselves, because they were taught by the Pharisees, thought that if they kept the law, they would be good enough to be good in God's eyes. And therefore, not only am I automatically in the kingdom, I don't have to respond to your invitation. I'm already grandfathered in because I'm a Jew. And on top of that, I've been a pretty good Jew. And therefore, I don't need your righteousness. 
My righteousness is good enough on my own. But Jesus has been saying from the beginning, blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will receive it. They'll get filled. Go with me to Romans chapter 9. Paul has been laying out in the book of Romans this whole doctrine of the fact that everyone is guilty under sin. We're going to start. Did I say Romans 9? I meant Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He's already laid out in chapter 1 that God's revealed himself to everyone and all men are without excuse because his divine nature, his eternal qualities have been clearly seen through what has been made. He then goes on in chapter 2 and lays out that even if you've never heard God's law like the Jews have, he's written his law in all of our hearts and we all have a conscience and the sense of right and wrong and we've all gone against that sense of right and wrong and he's revealing to us that we're lawbreakers. And in chapter 3, look at what he says in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now before we go any further. These are all Old Testament passages that he's quoting from. And let me just say to you, if you were reading that and thinking, well, that's been pretty bad people, you don't get it. If you think, well, I don't, I'm not, my feet aren't swift to shed blood. Don't think that you're not capable of that. Well, and as Jesus put it, it's not just if you have shed blood, it's if you've thought. Exactly. It, it goes to the root, to the heart. And God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. And we may pretty ourselves up and look real good, but on the inside, he knows what's really going on. And folks, I don't know about you. Actually, I do, but I'm just trying to act humble. But I know about you because you have the same problem I have. I've been saved since 1973 when I was eight years old. And I know the sinful thoughts and heart that I have. And the struggle against my flesh that, thank God, he's given me victory and teaches me how to have victory. But he's already defeated it in the sense that he's paid for my sin. Thank God I'm not going to be held accountable for all that stuff. And if with Christ in me, I know how much I still struggle. Man, I can't even tell you what I'd be if he had never saved me. I'd hate to even say and so we need to understand that we're spiritually bankrupt and hunger and thirst for righteousness. So he goes on and says, there's no one righteous, not even one. But now look what he says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now let me ask you a question real quick. Is this talking about the Jews or the Gentiles? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Jews. Everybody. Everybody. You remember? He's already said all have sinned. Are we Jews any better off? No. We've already said that both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Remember how I already told you in Romans 1, he said that he revealed himself through creation. Romans 2, he says, if even if you haven't heard the written law of God, he's written his law in your heart, showing you're a lawbreaker already. He's already laid this all out. And by the way, the rest of your answer, if you got it wrong, is okay. It's going to be right here. It says... Now, the, the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So it's more than just the Jews. It's Jew and Gentile. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, 
the righteousness of God. Remember, we're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This hunger, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. And John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, the Jews come to Jesus and they ask him, what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do to be righteous? In 28, they said to him, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. By the way, in this parable, what were they invited to? They were invited to the wedding feast for who? For his son. They were invited to the wedding feast for his son. It's all tied to his son. In John chapter 6, again, go to verses 44 and 45. In John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, No one, Jesus said, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Don't miss that. Remember, many are called. Only few are chosen. Who are the chosen? Those who come to Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, those who actually turn to Jesus for their righteousness, who understand that Jesus' sinless life, Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what gives them righteousness when they by faith believe that He did what we could not do. And when we by faith respond to God's invitation into His kingdom, I think Jesus put it this way, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes into the kingdom, no one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Yeah, you know, there are many who claim Christ today who say, well, I believe Jesus is the way that I get to God. But there are many ways. As long as you have faith. I was on a golf course in New Jersey and got paired up with this man and his wife. And of course, I'm going to squeeze and sniff and thump and find out if he knows the Lord. And of course, we get down a little later and he wants to find out what I do. And I always say, you really don't want to know. And he goes, no, 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 tell me. And I explain. And he says, oh, no, no. My wife, she goes to church. It's okay. My wife, she goes to church. I said, what about you? He said, I believe in God. And he goes, I think that as long as people believe in God, that's enough. I said, hang on. Jesus said that he was the only way to God and that no one can get to God except through faith in him. And he said, I think that if you just believe in God, that's good enough. Has he responded appropriately to the invitation to the kingdom? No. Now, the Jews as a whole felt they were righteous in and of themselves, and they didn't need a spiritual savior to pay for their sins. So you, you never mentioned that Satan did. I'm sorry? You never mentioned that Satan I didn't go down the road and say Satan believes and he trembles. I, I just, honestly, I only said what the Lord told me to say. He, he was very clear. He had decided that's the end of the conversation. I said, okay, that's what you want. That's, that's all you want. That's all you get. I'm not going to 
cast my pearls before swine, but that's next week's lesson anyway. So go to Luke 18. Go to Luke 18. Look at verses 9 through 14. And don't miss the reason for the parable according to Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated and treated others with contempt. And this is the parable. Two men went up to, a temp, up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. By the way, that was like one of the worst sinners in the eyes of the Jews. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed in this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't miss the attitude of the Pharisee. Was his faith in God or is in his faith in what he had done? Now, I need to go somewhere with this. You probably all would agree that in order to be saved, we have to acknowledge and you have come to that place where you realize there's nothing you can do to save you. You bring nothing to the table. God has to give you righteousness. But unfortunately, the enemy has lied to many of us. And now after we're saved, we still think on a daily basis, mostly, that God's pleasure with us is tied to how good we've been. And I pray that the Spirit of God, as He's been continually trying to work with me, will let this truth sink in. That God cannot love you more if you've been better, or love you less if you've been bad. If He loved you when you were a sinner, and He sent His Son to die for you when you were His enemy, Romans 5 says, how much more shall you be saved from His wrath now that you've been reconciled through His blood? And many of us are still trying to earn God's favor, even though we'd say, I can't bring anything to the table. I got nothing to be saved. It's all him. But now we think we have to do our part. We're going to talk about that tonight. So let that truth start sinking in. Go to Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 3. Again, describing the attitude and the heart mindset of the Jews as a whole, not just the Pharisees, but the Jews. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, this is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. You know, and I've said this before and I'll say it again. As I travel around the country, a lot of times I'll talk to church members. Most of the time, that's who I speak to as I go around and try to encourage the church. And I'll ask Christians or those who claim Christ, who have been church members for a long time. And I'll say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And it's amazing to me how many older people say, I hope so. And I'll say, what do you mean you hope so? And their answer is, well, I believe in Jesus and I've been trying to live a good life. They're still thinking that they bring something to the table. Folks, you don't bring anything to the table. Not only do you not bring anything to the table except faith to be saved. The only thing you bring to the table on a daily basis 
to live the Christian life and allow him to live it through you is faith. We're going to, again, you're going to see this played out in just a little bit. Go to Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, look at verses 3 through 7. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did he save you because of anything you did? The daily righteousness that we've been given that is to be manifested now is in the same capacity. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 puts it this way, in the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. But many of us have been raised in the church that you couldn't do anything to save yourself. Jesus does it all. You just receive it. But now that you're saved, here are the things you have to do. And when you join a church or walk an aisle to be saved and get baptized, they'll say, here are your envelopes. Here are service times. Here are a list of committees we'd like you to serve on too. And you've been taught to go to work for Jesus. Anybody ever heard that? After all that he's done for you, you owe it to him too. Ever heard that kind of preaching? And what the preachers have done have taught you to now live out the Christian life in the flesh. Beware that you don't become one of those folks. You go back to Matthew 22 and you'll go on. Go, go look at verse 11 in this parable. When the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And the guy was speechless. Then the king said to the attendant, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, again, Jesus in this parable is pointing out that entrance into the kingdom is tied to his making us worthy and not our own worthiness. But now he tells of a man who actually appeared to respond to the invitation. He didn't say, I don't need to go. I'm already good enough. Or I'm not interested. He actually seemed to respond to the invitation, went to the wedding. Now, when one would go to a wedding feast back in that day, the master of the house would provide a wed the wedding party clothes, if you would, for everyone to wear as they arrived. That's just how it was. It was the way that they said, yes, you were invited and you're welcome. When you showed up at the party, he would give you a garment to, what, to wear, kind of like... Back in the day when Disney used, my wife and I were first, we were newlyweds or even when we were engaged, we used to go to Disney every New Year's Eve because I had a buddy of mine that could get us into free and for fun. And every, it was just a fun, fun place to go on, on New Year's Eve because at the time there's no alcohol at Magic Kingdom. And you want to have a blast with 50,000 people celebrating New Year and the fireworks at midnight. It was, we had a blast. But what made it the most fun was they would hand out to everyone party hats and noisemakers so that every person in the park was wearing the same hat. Had, they, wear, they wore out before midnight, by the way. The noisemakers would finally die. But it was just kind of cool that all be at a party where everybody's wearing the same thing. Back in that day, when you would come to a wedding feast, 
everybody had the party clothes that were given to them by the master. So if there's a guy that's at the wedding feast and he's not wearing a garment, what he had to have done was when he showed up said, no thanks, what I'm wearing is enough. What I'm wearing is good enough. The master comes and says, what are you doing here without the robe that represents the fact that you've been accepted? And the guy was speechless, and as you see, he's cast out. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we read this, you're going to think that this is talking about the world, and it is. But as we continue into the rest of the verses, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, you're going to realize it's not just talking about the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Anybody want to agree with that one? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Isn't that interesting? We start reading and we think, oh, that's the world out there, buddy. It's what it is now. It's what it is now. But at the same time, it also goes and says, oh, by the way, in this group, there's going to be people who claim to be a part of the kingdom. Who deny his power. Be, beware those in the church who appear to have responded to God's invitation. But their faith is in what they have done, not in what Christ has done. You know, in Matthew 7, you don't have to turn there, verses 21 and following, Jesus said, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, these are people who when they stand before God and he says, you're not in, they're going to go, wait a minute, I did this, I did that. Where was their faith? In themselves. Sure sounds like the Pharisee. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I, fi I fast, I tithe. You see what I'm saying? Folks, again, let this truth sink in. You can't be saved unless you just by faith believe that it's all Jesus and none you. Also, though, on a daily basis, you need to understand that to live out this Christian life is all Jesus and none you. Now, you must walk in obedience. You must walk in faith, believing that he will do what he said he would do. But don't think it's up to you. How many of you have heard the preacher preach and thought, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. You've already started off on the wrong foot because apart from him, you can do nothing. That's why Jesus taught about the abiding relationship. And as the branch cannot produce fruit unless it's attached and abiding in the vine. So you too must abide in me. That's why we need to spend time on a regular basis in prayer, studying the word, allowing the truth of God to renew our minds. Because our flesh wants to be in control. And that's why Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he said, thanks be to God who gives me the victory through Jesus. And folks... We have to understand that that attitude that we might have had prior, and I believe we did, prior to our being saved, is still going to try to creep in. And you need to understand that Jesus is the one who's going to live this Christian life through you. It's going to be very important. You see, because part of the wedding garment 
was not only demonstration of the fact that you were welcome and received in the kingdom, the wedding garment represents something else, too. Does anybody know what it is? The righteousness of Christ. But go look again with me at Revelation 19. Go to Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Yes, you're right, Allison. It is the righteousness of Christ. But we've got to see how it's described in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is what? The righteous deeds of who? Of the saints. Now, wait a minute, Jim, didn't you just say that we don't do it, Jesus does it through us? Yes. But the, the righteous deeds of the saints, the righteousness that you produce, which actually is Jesus, is going to be what that's what the wedding garment represents. God doesn't just save you so he can bring you into the kingdom. He saved you so that he could use you for his purposes here as well before the kingdom. Actually, we're in the kingdom now, but the kingdom is still to come. The kingdom is quite big. But let me just say this to you. If God just simply wanted you to respond to the invitation and then you go to heaven, we would all pray that prayer, get baptized and die. But he leaves us here for a reason. And the Bible says he gives us gifts. And we're going to look at some of these scriptures that talk about that. He gives us gifts and, and, and he wants to empower us to live out these gifts. And there are things that God wants to do through you and through me for his glory that are going to be evidence that we've been saved. Evidence that we've been welcomed into the kingdom. Evidence that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not just that we've got a piece of paper that says the day we were baptized and the day we were saved. But actually... You're using the gifts that God's given you through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes, whatever they may be. And it's the righteous deeds of the saints done by Jesus. Oh, go back with me to Isaiah 61. As I was studying for this lesson, I ran across a passage I had never seen really in this way. And it's pretty cool. Go to Isaiah 61. Look at verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 61, verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with the beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. God doesn't just save us to have us come into the party. God saves us so that he, through us, by his grace, by his power, would produce righteous deeds that the world will see. Didn't Jesus say that back in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, Do you do good deeds before men so that they may what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Folks, I hope you don't just say, I'm just so glad I'm saved. But hopefully you're finding out what your just a is. You say, what do you, just, what do you mean by that? Well, we didn't name the ministry just a preacher ministries for no reason. Over the years, I've come to realize what my calling and what my gifting is. 
God used many different aspects of ministry in my life over the years to shape me and mold me for what he has me do. But I've come to realize where my gifts are and how he empowers me. And I've stopped letting churches write my job description and personnel committees write my job description or even nominating committees in our churches write my job description. And I've been living out what God's called me to do. And I want to encourage you to find what that is, too. Because you will really find your joy in your walk with the Lord if you find out where your gifts are. Some of you are encouragers. Some of you are givers. Some of you are administrative people. Some of you are mercy people. Some of you are service helps people. Go by the grace of God, in the power of God, manifest the fact that you're in the kingdom by your good deeds. I'm going to give you something the group last night didn't get. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter three, look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says to this church, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. How are you going to be able to stand there? At peace when Jesus comes and gathers us and takes us to the Bema seat. How are you going to stand there in holiness and blamelessness and ready? You're going to have been living your life in this life, encouraging other believers and everybody else in the world as well. But you're going to focus on loving each other more and more. And you find out what it is that's how you're gifted to love. Chris is gifted to love and to use his gifts of making sure the technical aspects and the computer stuff are working. I love the fact that whenever my phone email stops working, I can call Chris. I actually texted him from the ARC encounter in Kentucky and said, I'm getting this error message and I can't get my emails. And wherever he was at that time, might have been on the toilet, I don't know. Uh, he was able to figure out how to get my phone fixed. I used to, by the way, say, hey, sorry to bother you. Could you add this to the website? Hey, Chris, sorry to bother you. Could you change the speaking schedule? I just got this added or this taken away. And finally, he said to me one day, he goes, do you ever feel sorry that you get to preach? And I'm like, no. He goes, then stop apologizing to me when you let me get to use my gifts. You go find out what it is that God's wired you to do and you just go do it and use it to serve other people. Oh, don't expect everybody else to do it the way you do it or don't expect everybody else to do it with you. Just go love people with the way that you're wired to love people and you will find that all of a sudden people start to notice. Not only that person's in the kingdom, they got a nice robe on because the righteous deeds of the saints, which is empowered by God. Now, I'm going to hit this hard and fast. You say, Jimmy, you've been going fast already. Not yet. So I'm going to ask you to get a pen out, get a way to write, because I'm going to go faster. I'm going to read them to you, but I'm going to go faster than some of you can keep up. Not only does God give us his righteousness for us to be saved. We know 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, for him, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He, he took our sin, put it on Jesus and took his righteousness and put it on us. But not only does God give us his righteousness for us to be saved, any righteous deeds that we do after salvation have been done by him as well. Philippians 2.13, right after it says in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the very next verse says, for it's God who works in you both to will, that's the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who gives us the desire and the ability to, to do whatever it is he asked us to do. Go to 2 Thessalonians. We just ended up in 1 Thessalonians. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Folks, for too long we've had the preacher say, go do this. And the Bible all along has said, go, but in God's power. Go and let him establish you in every good work and word. When I first started preaching, I didn't fully understand this. And I spent more time worrying about how well I did. And my poor wife put up with every time I finished preaching, I'd, we'd drive home or drive to lunch. And I'd turn to her after church and say, how do you think I did? And she'd lovingly smile. It reminds me of a joke that I thought of last night. I'll tell it to you guys. So there's this preacher and his wife have been married for 50 years and the wife had to go on a trip and she said to her husband, she said, look, I'm going to go away for a few days. And if for some reason something happens, I'm an older lady now, if something happens and I die, there's a box underneath the bed. I want you to open it. But she said, don't open it unless you find out that I've died. If I haven't died, don't touch that box. But if I die, there's a box under the bed and I want you to open it. Well, she's on the trip and it's driving him nuts now. He didn't know any idea about this box. He wants to know what's in it. So he figures, well, she won't ever know if I look in it or not. So he opens the box and in it is $20,000 and three eggs. Well, he didn't know what in the world this is. He closes it carefully, puts it back under the bed. She comes home. He doesn't say anything for a couple of days, but now it's driving him nuts. He finally says, honey, I, you, I have, I'm sorry. The curiosity got the best of me. I, I looked in the box. Why in the world do you have a box with $20,000 and three eggs? She said, well, honey, you and I have been married for 50 years, and you've been preaching for 50 years, and every time you preached a bad sermon, I put an egg in that box. He said, well, that's not too bad, I guess. After all these years, you only got three eggs. What's the $20,000 for? She said, every time I got to a dozen, I had to sell. <laughs> Back when I first started preaching, poor Becky had to put up with, how did I do? Did you think they liked it? Do you think it made sense? I would look at whether or not anybody walked down the aisle and I would feel good if people did and feel bad if they didn't. Like it was tied to how well I did. I hope you take this in the right way. I don't really worry anymore about how well I do anymore. I still pray. I still prepare. I study. But when I walk into the pulpit... Not only do I allow God to guide me in my study, when I walk into the pulpit to preach or to teach a Bible study, I'm believing that he's going to take over, and he does. I sometimes have to go back, listen to the recording, and hear what I said, because he's the one doing it. I want you to find what it is you're supposed to do, and let him establish you in every good work and word. Let me show you something in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which may surprise you how Paul words this. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verses 5 through 9. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Listen closely. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers in your God's field, God's building. Look at what he said. He said, look, I planted Apollos watered, but if anybody was saved, God did that. And listen to this. The one who plants and the one who waters is nothing. Yeah, what do we spend all our time doing? Exalting, oh, so-and-so, he's so gifted, and so-and-so, he's such a great preacher. Folks, if you're impressed with anything that I do, it's Jesus. 
Again, that's my wife. She lives with me. She knows me more than anybody else. If it says it's going to be impressive, it ain't me. In the same way, you don't have to be impressive. You just have to believe that God will empower you to do what it is he said he would do. Jump over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, look at verses 4 through 6. Paul says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And then he goes on in different gifts. But listen, he's gifted each of us according to how he's designed. Stop expecting everybody else to be doing what you're doing. And just, don't sound like Martha and say, Lord, tell my sister to help me. If you are doing what God's asked you to do in his power, you don't feel like you need help. You don't feel like you're burnt out. Have you ever heard the term burnout in church? We say it all the time, don't we? Let me ask you a question. Does the Holy Spirit ever run out? So if we're burnt out, it's because we've been trying for years to do the work of Christ or the work of the church in our own strength. We signed up for a committee that God never wanted us to be a part of, but the nominating committee called, and I felt guilty saying no. And let me just tell you something, folks. There is no more joy than finding what it is that God's called you to do. I love how when they came to John the Baptist and said, Are you the Christ? He said, A man can only receive what he's been given from above. That's not my role. That's not my role. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verses 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. By the way, I'm not even giving you half of the scriptures that illustrate this. It's all through the Bible. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that's in me. Go to Colossians chapter 1, last one, Colossians 1. Look at verses 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Jesus was always at his father's work. And when the disciples came and said, you haven't eaten anything, eat something. He goes, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. I'm being empowered in ways that you don't even understand because you're still looking at it with human eyes. Folks, let me just encourage you. The righteous deeds of the saints is what their robe represents. Not just the righteousness of Christ, but the righteous deeds of the saints. But the righteous deeds of the saints were never done by the saints. They were done by Jesus through the saints. And my prayer is, or my question is, Whose clothes are you wearing? When people see you, do they see the righteousness of Christ and Him working through you in power? Or do they see you, see you trying to be a good Christian, trying to be a good church member? I'm going to encourage you. 
you won't be manifesting the righteousness of Christ unless you are using your gifts. If you're just sitting back and being a church member and going to Bible study or going to church and being a consumer, you don't get it. Because God didn't just save you so you'd be in the party. God saved you so he could use you for his purposes in encouraging the body and other people. Find out what it is. Like I said, some are gift of giving, some are gift of mercy, some are gift of help, service and helps, encouragement, administration, lots of different ways. I know a guy that he loves to just cook for people. He just loves it. That's great. Go do it. You like giving people stuff? You like buying people groceries? Go do it. But if I can get more people, no, no, no. Just go do it. And let God show you how he wants to do it through you. Go back to Matthew 22 and we'll try to get as far as the group last night got in this last section here or this next section of Matthew 22. Look at verses 15 through 22. It says, And the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him. This is Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. We'll deal with who the Herodians were next week. Along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now we're only going to get through just a little bit of this in the time we have left tonight. I want you to notice, look at verse 15. What was the Pharisees' true purpose in asking Jesus this question? To trap him in what? Entangle him in his own words. Put a finger here, a bookmark in Matthew 22. Go to Luke 11. Look at Luke 11, verses 53 through 54. I really, really want you to see this because here's where it not only is a lesson about how Jesus responded. God wants to talk to us today, and especially in this day and age in which we live, where we have Facebook and social media and lots of ways for people to preach to each other. Go to Matthew chapter, sorry, Luke chapter 11, verses 53 and 54. As he, this is Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So here are two passages that show us that they're trying to entangle him in his words. And one of the ways they're going to try to entangle him in his words was to get him to talk a lot. I'm going to show you from Scripture in the time we have tonight. That's as far as we're going to get. I'm going to show you from Scripture that the Bible actually says that Christians shouldn't be talking too much. And definitely should not be getting into arguments and debate with people about stuff. You may think you're serving God when you get in this back and forth argument with someone on Facebook. And I'm going to show you scripturally, you're actually playing right into the enemy's hands. He wants you to keep talking. If you really believe the word of God is powerful enough to accomplish its purpose, I'm going to show you the scripture says, share them the scripture, leave it. Don't go back and forth. By the way, who's behind this trying to trap him in his words and get him to talk a lot so that he can trip him up? Who's really behind it? The enemy. You all know 2 Peter. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where it says, Our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
He prowls a lot around, the scripture says. It even says, be on your guard, watch out. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may, may devour. And back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan's on the earth. And what does he do? He comes to Eve. Actually, I believe the scripture shows us Adam standing right there. And he says to her, did God really say you're not allowed to eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, that sounds crazy. Now, if you know the scriptures, the scripture says God had already said to them, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. You can eat from all of them. Just don't touch this one. Satan, who knew that, comes and tries to just get her into a little discussion. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree? And of course, her response was, oh, you're wrong. I've got the right answer. And all he's done is get her to talk. So that he can take her words, twist them, and he's got her. Folks, the enemy's out there trying to use the people of the world and unfortunately others in the church to trip you up. For years, I've come to realize that when I travel around the country and I teach the Bible, a lot of times people will say, you seem to know a lot of the scriptures. Do you mind if you have a question and answer night? And I'm like, I'm fine. Well, in a couple of conditions. One, you're OK with me saying I don't know because I don't have all the answers. And secondly, are you really wanting answers or are you just wanting to find out if I'm on your side or somebody else's? Because that's usually whenever people ask questions, they already have in their mind what they believe. They're not really wanting to learn. They're just wanting to find out, do you agree with me? I said, if that's your whole purpose for asking me questions, I don't want to waste our time. Go to 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 2. We'll look at verses 14 through 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use, and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, by the way, irreverent Babel is dishonorable, He'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, because of this, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians says, uh, I strain toward knowing Christ more, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. I press on. And then he says this, he says, and those of you who are mature will think this way, but if in anything you think differently, the Lord will show you. Could Paul have won an argument? 
but he chose not to. Go to Titus chapter 3. You're in 2 Timothy. Just turn over to Titus. Go to chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and following. Remind them, Paul tells Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Jump down to verse, 11, uh, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that you who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. You know what part of the problem, though, is with this? Not only is the enemy out there trying to trip us up, trying to get us to talk a lot. There's another part of the problem. It's us. Many of us like to show others how much we know. Actually, the Bible says you don't have to turn there. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3, talks about how knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Again, when I was a younger preacher, the way that God's wired my brain and being able to know most of the Bible have it in my heart. I used to love to argue with people over scripture. And I had lots of people that would love to argue with me over it because they thought they were right too. And I used to think to myself, yeah, let's go into a battle. Let's have a battle. I got more bullets in my gun than you do having yours. And then I started to realize over the years that actually I was falling prey to the enemy. What did we already read? It doesn't do the hearers any good. It doesn't do any good. And you're going to see as we come back next week, Jesus We'll just share with them scripture, a word from God, leave it alone. And I want to challenge you to do the same. Too many people are out there trying to become teachers, especially in these days of social media. And a lot of Christians out there think they're doing good by talking a lot on the Internet. Don't do it. Don't do it. Let me close with James chapter 3 tonight. Go to James chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Share this truth, share the scripture. We'll get into more of this next week. But then let the Lord do his work. James chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter, with greater strictness. Well, I didn't try to become a preacher in the church. I, I didn't try to be a Sunday school teacher. No, the moment you start telling everybody else on Facebook what you think God says, you've just made yourself a teacher. Instead of just sharing the scripture, leaving it alone. But when you think you have to explain it and articulate it, there are those who are called by God to do it and gifted by God to do it. And oh, folks, let me just tell you, on the day of judgment, there's going to be a lot of people who made themselves prophets on the Internet who are going to be in a lot of trouble. There's a lot of wacky stuff out there, folks. I could take the time to share with you some of the stuff I've seen. It'll blow your mind. If you even read the Internet, or try to, you'll see it. Be careful. Because we all stumble in many ways, verse 2. And if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Jump down to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false about the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For we, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm not saying don't share scriptural truth on the internet. I'm saying share it once, leave it alone. Share what only God tells you to share. Make sure it's God's word, not your opinion. How much do we read? Well, I think this and I think that. I think this and I think that. This uh, past trip, we, Becky and I had a chance to meet with a young man who grew up in uh, the church where I was pastor in Chicago and has gone into a lifestyle that's not pleasing to God. And we still love him. And when we knew he was in the area, we went and met with him, had breakfast with him. But also, I had the opportunity to lovingly say to him, what you're doing isn't right before God. He goes, I don't want to argue about interpretations. I said, I'm not going to. I just want you to know this isn't pleasing to God, and I don't approve of it, but I still love you. We hugged him, and we went our way. And if I'm back in that area and I get to meet with him again, I will. But we didn't get into an argument. Oh, I could have pulled out my Bible and shown him all the scriptures that say what he's doing is sin, but that wouldn't have done any good. He knows the truth. And the Spirit of God is the one that's going to do his work. Oh, and by the way, he's way better at it than me. Because he can get into that man's heart and mind and deal with him throughout the day in ways that I'll never be able to. I shared the truth. I did it gently. I did it lovingly. I did it briefly. And I let God take it from there. So I'm not saying shut up. I'm saying say it, then shut up. I love you. See you next week. <laughs>